Welcome, listeners, to the 20th episode of the Law of Liberty podcast. I uh, couldn't have my co-host Stratty join us today, but we are joined by the host of the Liberty Weekly pa- podcast, Patrick McFarlane. I'm pronouncing that right, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, he's the host of the Liberty Weekly podcast, and he's an attorney in uh, Wisconsin. And he's here to talk about law and liberty and stuff. Uh, Patrick, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So uh, just to start the episode, um, I'm hoping that you could give our listeners who might not know who you are just a little bit of background about yourself. Um, Who are you? What's your show all about? And uh, what kind of stuff are you interested in? Yeah, so I, I thought it was interesting to join you on your show because you're in your third year of law school. And I started my show when I was in my third year of law school. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was just um, kind of reflecting on that just recently. And, um, you know, I kind of, I started my show as a blogging site because I got really into Tom Woods after my first year of law school. I had this job as a, um, in the alumni relations department at my law school just for after the first year. And I was able to listen to, um, podcasts on headphones when I was doing like data entry stuff and and contacting alums. And so it was, I fell in love with that. And, um, you know, Tom always said you should blog or do something like that. And I was really, really excited about libertarianism. I've always been a, I was a Ron Paul libertarian, but never really radical, radical. And so then that summer I really got into Murray Rothbard and, and I think it happened before then too, but so, um, yeah, I, I, you know, through law school, I, I was on the public policy journal. I wrote three articles regarding, you know, anarchist libertarianism. And I, I kind of exposed my professors to it a little bit. And they thought it was a novel concept because you can push it, you can pitch it as some kind of like a, with a social justice element when you're talking about certain things. And so um, I, I graduated, I I got admitted to practice in Wisconsin and the federal, the Eastern federal district, Western federal district of Wisconsin. And so I started at a general practice firm doing everything. I mean, pretty much everything, um, civil work, doing lots of criminal defense, uh, divorces, business organizations, residential transactions. So I got a little taste of everything. And then I, I got a good opportunity to work at a personal injury firm. And uh, so I started doing that and I I learned, you know, I I know the basic, I can litigate personal injury cases and it was certainly an interesting experience. So, and throughout all that time, I've had the podcast where I've covered libertarian legal theory. I've I've interviewed, you know, Stefan Kinsella has been on this show. I've interviewed him. I've interviewed David Friedman about his work and uh, I've gotten to have a lot of really really awesome relationships throughout the years with other libertarians. So it's been wonderful. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I remember the first episode of your show that I had seen was when you talked with Kinsella. Um because oh, cool. because I was working on um I'm working on a paper right now for a class. I'm taking an AI and law class, which is really cool because my professor is actually a libertarian. Um nice. not not an ANCAP, but he's a he's a good libertarian. But I'm doing a class where basically I'm making an argument that uh, you can't use AI to overcome the impossibility thesis for the allocation of resources for the provision of law. And so Kinsella did an article in the Journal of Libertarian Studies back in 95, um, discovery of law, legislation of discovery of law and free society. 
And so yeah. I'm basically I'm using that article to lay the baseline of to argue how legislation is basically, you know, socialism, centralized planning. And then I'm going to take that argument and say, because legislation is basically centralized planning, it falls victim to the impossibility thesis. And you can't use AI to write or create or collect data and analyze data and write legislation. You can't use that because the data has to be market prices. Because if you don't have the market prices, then the AI couldn't even use that data to come up to rational conclusions. So that's basically my my argument. And so I was just doing research on that. So I just looked up on YouTube, Kinsella, Legislation, Free Society. And your video came up and I listened to it. And immediately the first thing I did was I joined your Discord and I messaged you and I said, we need to get you on because you're basically doing exactly with your show with what I want to do with my show. And I had no idea about who you were. So it was really, really cool. And I'm glad we made it work out. Yeah, well, right on. That's that's really cool to hear, you know, and as you do your show more and, and you, you know, people start to reach out to you and you get these feelers out, um, you start to hear about how people find your work and it inspires them to do other work. And um, I, Mark Clare of the Lines of Liberty just had an article on Substack, which was really in the same vein as what I'm like thinking about right now is like, looking back, you know, I haven't done this as long as Mark has, but there are certain stages of it, you know, where you, you're like, holy crap, it's been like four years now. <laughs> and, and like, you know, so no, that's a very interesting topic. And, and I was surprised in my interview with David Friedman that, you know, I knew Friedman was not, he's, he's more of a um, Chicago. He, yeah, he is more of a Chicago, but I mean, he's more of like um, uh, the word is escaping me, but he, he's more, it seems like he's more empirically focused. Oh yeah. And, and he's, he seemed to push back on the idea that legislation is really, you know, law by fiat mm -hmm. it, in a bad way. And like, I, I, I asked him a question. I don't remember exactly what I, you know, whether or not he is someone who advocates for, you know, common law planning over, well, excuse me, common law discovery of law over some kind of centralized planning legislation. And he was really noncommittal. He it really seemed like he was trying to establish himself as an objective observer of the law instead of someone who would advocate for a certain type. Hmm. So I'm, I'm assuming that your thesis, it's kind of built off of the Misesian, um, you know, price signal. Oh, yeah. Theory. Yeah. So, well, the interesting thing about Friedman is, to my understanding, he's very utilitarian. Um, and, that was the word I was looking for. Uh, okay. Yeah. He's yeah. like, he doesn't care at all about, um, I mean, I think it was the main rift between him and Rothbard because Rothbard, this is a famous, do you hate the state, right? right. And he says yeah. that Friedman is a, he's right. I mean, he makes good empirical examples and good empirical arguments, but he doesn't hate the state in the sense of like that gut, um, you know, that gut moral outrage that moral outrage is indispensable to getting them on the right path to liberty. I mean, you know, I just don't think normal people are going to be convinced by, you know, numbers and, and those kind of empirical arguments. I think a lot of it just goes over their heads and they just don't care. Yeah. In, in a strange way, it's like when we put our content like this out there, we attract a certain type of person. Yeah. And I, it's not the type of person that is convinced by emotional arguments. Um, at least that's what I think. And mm -hmm. that's why I think it's so important. I just interviewed, um, 
I'm I have like five episodes in the can right now, yeah. but I just interviewed because I have all this free time and I'm like, bam, 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 bam. Yeah. Who who have I always thought I wanted to interview? But um, I, I interviewed John Odermatt about Felony Fridays and his new show, Finding Freedom, which is kind of the same thing. But that is what people respond to are these human stories. If, if your audience is not familiar with it, John Odermatt, he interviews uh, people who are victims of the state through wrongful convictions or through, um, uh, you know, being imprisoned for victimless crimes. And those are the civil asset forfeiture victims. Mm. And those are the real human stories that people are convinced by, I think. Yeah. Dude, that civil asset forfeiture, that's something that a lot of people don't even know it's happening. But yeah. I mean, you don't even need to be convicted of anything. And they'll take your stuff without a warrant, without due process. And that's crazy. Mean, that's crazy to me. Yeah. You mean grandson gangbanger was selling dime bags outside of grandma's house. <laughs> Oh, the Chicago PD came in and seized grandma's house. <laughs> yeah. That's the kind of stuff. Yeah, it's ridiculous what these people get away with. So, yeah, I think that that sense of moral outrage is just really key. Because, I mean, that's what really convinced me. Um, I don't know if you've talked about this at all on your show yet, um, but it, you're working on a little book, right? And yeah, yeah. I read the first page that you sent me. And within the first paragraph, you were talking about the story of your enslavement by Stephen Molyneux. And I'm yeah. just like, man, me and this guy have so much in common. It all goes back to Stephen Molyneux. Yeah. <laughs> all, Ayn Rand and Stephen Molyneux. It just, just seems like there's so many people out there. It's like, that's where it starts. Well, it's like, you got to be careful nowadays too, I guess, with Stefan because, yeah. you know, in, in, um, there is no one, I don't mean to detract this into a conversation about Stefan Molyneux, but Keith, Keith specifically is very big supporter of Stefan Molyneux in terms of, I mean, there's no one else with the following he has, and Dave Smith has said this, like the body of work he has, the following he has, the people he's brought over, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't just Steph, Stefan Molyneux for me, but it was a large, I mean, that is when I was massively red-pilled, that yeah. video. There was, I mean... If, and I'm so glad you say that because that is the whole point of the book is to, it is not a book for regular folks. It's like a chicken, chicken soup for the anarchist soul, for the libertarian yeah. anarchist soul. So I know the audience is going to be small for it, but if I can, if I would stand to wager that if you've had the same experience as me, then there are lots of people that have. Well, that was, that's one of the nice things that I really experienced in the last year because I was I was convinced of anarcho-capitalism when I was 19 years old. I was a sophomore in college. I had read Atlas Shrugged the year before, the summer before, and then through osmosis, I discovered Stefan. And he was really, for a while, the only one I kind of knew about. And from him, I discovered Mises Institute and then broadened, broadened the scope of, of people I was learning from. But for a while, he was really like the linchpin of my you know, red pill awakening. And I remember um, what convinced me was when I learned how government debt works and yeah. the way he described it. And basically, it is, it's a lien on unborn people's lives. It really is. It's people who are not alive yet. We are using you as collateral to take out debt from foreign governments. And once I understood how that worked, like the story of your enslavement where he says you're owned, you're, it's like it just made sense to me. And, you know, it's... It's scary. You know, I mean, I remember there was a little while where I had resistance in my mind. I'm like, can this really work? Like, can we really not have a government? But it's 
the more I thought about it, I was just like, this can't be justified. And that's one of the things too. I think a lot of people are like, uh, one of the things that always bothers me is that if you say to anybody, well, I don't think the government should do this or that, they want you to, in response, to answer every possible objection, every possible hypothetical, every crazy scenario. And it's just like, no, it's like more of like, and this is one thing about law too. Law is a process. You solve disputes over time. You don't need to have every question to every possible, every answer to every possible question right now. You need to have a good system to have good evidence and to be fair and to come to a just conclusion. And then over time, that body of law grows and custom and everything. So that's one of the things that bothers me is that people, people treat you like you're supposed to know everything. But that, if you're asking that question, you've missed the point of what I've already said. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a good analogy is, is the law itself. Um, you know, my mom is a legal professional too. And, and she, um, she gets it, you know, she, she gets that, that part of it. And so you, one cool thing about the law is that it has so many mysteries to it. And as you progress in your career, you know, when you first start your career, everything is a mystery and a terrifying kind of like, um, what is that? A terrifying kind of, um, oh, geez, the H.P. Lovecraft kind of immense <laughs> way. Yeah. Cthulhu. Um, yeah, Cthulhu <laughs> kind of ancient ones, like just swallowing you up into the black void. <laughs> That's how I felt. Yeah. But, um, you know, and as you go on, if you read people like um, um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, I, I did a piece on him because I wanted to smack him to be like yes. a hit piece. Yes, but his writing, um, I, I can't remember exactly what the writing was because I mean, screw that guy. But at the same time, he, he had a very pointed way with words and, yeah. and you can't deny that. And he was very intelligent. Oh, yeah. And that's what makes his Buck v. Bell opinion so like cutting and ruthless is because he's so eloquent about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it kind of reminds me, too, of uh, Cardozo. I mean, Cardozo was such a great writer and, you know, love yeah. him or hate him. Um, he, he could, he was one of the most beautiful legal writers I've ever read. And anytime I read a Cardozo opinion, just the prose alone is just, is kind of a treat. Um, remind me, what was the, uh, what was that Holmes opinion? Buck v. Bell? Oh, the Buck v. Bell. That's the, um, involuntary sterilization case. The, oh my God. the one, the one that your con law professor talked about in hushed, disappointed tones. Well, that reminds me of, uh, Jacobson too, right? The, the, uh, forced vaccination. The yeah. That pox. was, pre that was precedent that was used in, in Buck v. Bell. Wow. Basically the, the reason Buck v. Bell was, you know, passed is that, you know, it was the majority opinion. So. I think there were, it was seven to two, if I'm remembering correctly, but yeah. Um, so in that case, um, Carrie Buck was, she, she was, you know, the famously Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said, um, you know, three generations of imbeciles is enough. Let's cut the fallopian tubes, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, <laughs> oh you'll have God. to read it. I mean, your, your listeners will have to read it. The opinion is only like five or six paragraphs long. Wow. It's like the, the power to something about like the power to involuntarily vaccinate someone should extend to tying the fallopian tubes is is just roughly what he said. So, wow. That's yeah, it's, it's brutal. And, and, and the thing is, is that I was trying to say in a, in a work about it is that, you know, my con law pro professor was a very progressive, you know, all your law professors, yeah. except for the one you have now is a yeah. progressive 
individual. He didn't seem to tie, you know, the progressive mindset to eugenics or to these, you know, this opinion on creating law or being a judicial activist. He didn't seem to tie that to these decisions. Yeah. In fact, you know, he he relied on Lochner to be like, oh, well, judicial activism is bad, uh, you know. Yeah. Of course, it's only bad when we use it for liberty purposes. Right, exactly. And then you could say, too, not to ramble, but you could say, too, that um, the whole idea of the Supreme Court striking down a state law is totalitarian in of itself, even if that law is a libertarian or excuse me, is is uh, a totalitarian law. So to have an activist Supreme Court that is activist on the side of liberty striking down state laws is still totalitarian. Yeah. Well, that gets into the the big weird kind of view that I have of substantive due process because it's like I kind of like, you know, uh, protections of free speech and all that kind of stuff. You know, I want all the states to respect those kind of liberties, but it's the federal government who's coming in and unilaterally saying you can't do this. And so there, there's definitely some danger there that they could pervert the desire to have that liberty and um, road to hell paved with good intentions. Right. I remember that moment, too. You know, my uh, my um, my constitutional criminal constitutional law professor described himself as a civil libertarian. I remember writing an article when I was in his class when he professed that I wrote an article. The problem with civil libertarians. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I, I relied on, you know, Milton Friedman saying that you, you can't have, you know, economic liberty is so tied to to every other liberty that you can't have one without the other. You can't just cherry pick. But but going back to that, what they do in these law school classes is they rely on the worst, absolute worst, you know, substantive due process instances. Oh, you know, the whole the whole town full of Southern, um, you know, old boys club turned on this young black man who was falsely accused and they ended up executing him and his, you know, just because of an allegation of rape or something. Um, they use that, you know, and that's why they say, Oh, we have to have, you know, the, uh, the bill of rights enforced through the 14th amendment. The Supreme court has to be the Supreme watch Lord over all these States because otherwise they would just, you know, they would get rid of the fourth amendment and, you know, do xyz yeah well i, mean, I struggled with that yeah i I still struggle to it um with it to this day i mean uh in our episode where we talked about lochner I, I mean i think i think lochner is basically correct but i still recognize the uh the, the troubles um that are there um you know it's it also comes down to an empirical question too right because it's like how much have the states actually been you know uh, rights violators or whatever. And I mean, the states are no angels, but I mean, you know, both the feds and the states have done terrible things. I mean, the states supported slavery, but the federal government does all the things that it does, you know, and especially with the intelligence agencies and lots of things that we never, we don't even know have happened yet. They're not going to get declassified until we're old, but um, I don't know. It's just, it, it, they just kind of assume that, there's so many assumptions, you know, they just assume that the federal government is this wise, uh, this wise thing. And we where would we be without it? You know, it, I, I'm actually taking a we're taking a class. I'm taking a class right now on uh, American legal history. 
Um, and it's not just kind of, it's not just on this date, this happened. And this, it's not that kind of class. It's more of like themes, you know, and we're reading certain documents and just kind of talking about. Um, Let me you guess, are, are you reading this one? No. Uh, okay. No. So. <laughs> so that's the ideological origins of the American Revolution. No, yeah. we're, we're actually reading, um, what's it called? It's, uh, I can't remember what the book's called, but it's by a guy named Friedman. Mm, I can't remember. I'll not send... Milton or David. No, 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 no. It's not one of those guys. It's 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 just like a strictly legal history, um, legal history of the United States. I don't know. Just just so many people have it ingrained in them that the that the federal government is just it just can't do any wrong, you know. And it's just it's uh it's very unnerving. Well, I mean, that's what you've been hearing since you were in elementary school. Yeah, for sure. I'm sorry. I you got me. My favorite class in law school was American legal history, and we read that Bernard Balin book, which is just incredible. Yeah. If you haven't read it, um, but we also read this. You know, it, most of the class focused on British legal history for you know reasons because our whole system is derived from the British common law system. So, uh, Anne Leone's um, Constitu constitutional history of the United Kingdom was one that we read and. You know, you go back to all the, it, it was just fascinating. I wish I would have read more because of course in, I didn't read in law school because no one really did. So I, <laughs> I don't know about you. Is I that, you do? Okay. Okay. I don't, I mean, I don't want to say I didn't read at all, but you know, maybe about a fifth of what I could. Some, sometimes I try to not read. And then I just feel like I'm going to fail. And so my yeah. conscience takes over. The, the fear spear, spurns, yeah. spurs you from behind. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, so ha, do you have any, have you done any externships or like law clerking or anything like that? So um, between my first and second year, I did two different internships. Other than that, I haven't done any work outside of law school because my second, my, the second summer between second and third year, um, I spent two weeks at the Mises Institute doing stuff there. Ah, awesome. Yeah, it was great. I never got that chance. I The most I did was um, with Students for Liberty, I went to Freedom Fest in the summer of 2016, Vegas. So I always wanted to go to the Mises Institute, but, you know, I had I got married, I had a kid, and then it was like, yeah. You know. Yeah, one thing leads to another. Did you know... Um, I know Stephen Clyde went one year. I don't, did you run into him at all? He doesn't sound okay. familiar. Okay. I'm sure, you know, with the different years and everything, two ships passing in the night. Who's he? Stephen Clyde? Yeah, he, he does the peace. Well, he did the peace and Liberty podcast, but he, he's like, a, I think he's in grad school now for economics. He lives in Denver, but he was part of our podcasting circle for a okay. while. Um, yeah. So, and I know he went to Mises U one of these years and okay. because I was supremely jealous of him. <laughs> yeah. I met a few people there, um, in my podcast circles, um, who, who kind of got me into podcasting. One of the really nice things over the past almost a year, about half a year has just been meeting so many other libertarians because I first came into it when I was 19 from the age of 19 in in 2015 until then so about five years i didn't know anybody i did i had never met another ancap libertarian i mean i was totally on my own for like almost half a decade and then over this past year i've met so many people people my age people older so it's just been really amazing meeting other people and just like oh 
it's like I'm not alone. Like yeah. it's such an amazing feeling and a realization that I I didn't have for so long. And you know, this is something I'm writing about in my book is is this I luckily I had Jerry was my first co-host and um he's the one who exposed me to Molyneux. He's the one who we, he found out I was, you know, I had a reason magazine sticker on my laptop in college. This was senior year in undergrad. And he, he, um, he had started at the university of Minnesota, but he had dropped out when he realized it was all bull. And so he just entered the workforce, but you know, we lived in a, in animal house, like all Craigslist roommates. <laughs> together. It was, I mean, it was filthy. We got oh, broken into. No I, one did it. I yeah. lived in a similar house. We had a house with eight people, myself included, and it was. I mean, we had one. Po- we had at one point, we had a pipe clog, for a, a sink pipe <laughs> clogged. Yeah. Because it was clogged, it started leaking, and then the drywall ceiling in our living room caved in oh one day God. because of the water damage, and we had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it was that kind of house. Oh my god! <laughs> Sorry. We, no, no. I think it was like my parents came over one time, and I remember they were sitting there, like, yeah, rounded how filthy everything was. Did and, you have? Did you have any hardwood flooring where it's like you, yep. it's sticky because of yeah. all the beer? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. That's and, life, uh, man. It, it was a blast. Oh it yeah. Was like it was the best year of my undergrad experience. Would, wouldn't trade it for anything by far and oh, yeah. you know all my roommates smoked weed all the time and when we moved in like my my roommate next door to me he was a finance major and he he went on to be like he's an exec at some kind of or you know he he's a high up associate at some kind of uh financial institution but when we moved in he was he was stoned off his ass and my dad could tell yeah. <laughs> and i was i was like hmm interesting so but, you know, I, I ran into Jerry and he he saw that Reason Magazine sticker on my laptop. And, you know, he was an Austro-Libertarian at the time. And he he wasn't like, but he wasn't like, oh, you like Reason Magazine? You know, yeah. he was like, oh, Reason, you know, what what's up? Like, and so we got to talk and he very gently held my feet to the fire, asking me questions mm-hmm. about, you know, how do you delegate a right that you don't have? Or, you know, just those kind of questions. And, um he led me to Stefan Molyneux in the first place. And that's how I really came down this path. So it, you really can reach people and you don't know what kind of fires that you're going to start in people's minds. Yeah. Um, ah, geez. That's the thing for me. It's like, I kind of feel lucky that I didn't know anybody for the time being when I was like learning the philosophy of it, because I mean, not to, not to rag on, you know, our fellow libertarians, but I mean, sometimes they can, uh, Sometimes they can do things and say things that <laughs> might turn someone off if they're yes. not exactly sure what's going on. <laughs> right. Well, and that was, I had an experience just like that with, I was in Yale, um, you know, an undergrad too. And I ran into someone and he was like, oh, like you're, you're a libertarian. And he was like, well, who do you read? And I, at the oh, time God. I was very new Yeah. and I was like, well, I don't know, like John Stuart Mill you know, like, cause I Ooh. had his, you know, it was like, Oh, classical libertarianism. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and I, it was just the way he did it was not welcoming or con- constructive yeah. at all. You know, people, people are at all different places in their journey and mm-hmm. it's like, you gotta, but so for you, I mean, did you go through 
this is what I describe in my book because I went through this. Did you go through an evangelical phase, I call it, where all you did was talk about it and you tried to preach and like convince everyone? In a sense, yes. Um, but it wasn't like it was the only thing I ever like cared about. But there, there were definitely times where um, there were definitely times where I probably brought it up more than I should have. But yeah. the, but the good thing was that it, it was weird. I was in a weird situation is because I I was always a conservative. I grew up a conservative when I was a freshman in college beca- before I became a libertarian. My guy was Glenn Beck. I listened to Glenn Beck every day when I was a freshman in college. I loved the Glenn Beck program. And t- I still listen to Glenn Beck sometimes. I really don't have much problem. I think he's fine. I disagree yeah. with him, but I, I don't have any problems with him. But um, I had already established my friend group by the time I was getting red-pilled. So I was in a music group. We were a percussion, um, we were a pu- percussion group. Um, that was funded through the university. So it was a student group. We got university funding. And I basically became friends with all those people before that. And then afterwards, I came back the second year, and I'm just like, hey, guys, what do you think about this? <laughs> yeah. and, and and at that point, I was already like so deep ingrained in the group, and I was one of the best musicians in the group. And I had already commanded a lot of respect from people. And so... That was what I think really saved me in a lot of ways because because I had already commanded so much of their respect and they liked me as a person, they were much more willing to listen to what I had to say. Um, you know, some of them obviously could never be convinced, but I think that they were at least more willing to listen to what I had to say because they already liked me. And I think sometimes people overlook that. Like just having a normal relationship with somebody where you talk to them about music and sports and just, you know, just be a dude that can open them up to other things. And I think sometimes people don't think about that. They just kind of throw it at their face, and it's just like, if you think the government is this and this, then you support violence and and all this stuff. And it's just like, people are confused. People don't know what's happening. So it's like, just because someone supports the state, that doesn't mean they support violence, because they might not even know what the state is doing. So you need to be delicate with people, and you need to be... You need to be strong. You need to not compromise on your message, but you also need to understand. I forget what I felt like when I was being red pilled. I do. I forget how sometimes like scared shitless I was. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think a lot of people forget that when they then try to spread the message to other people. It felt, I don't know. It felt really dangerous. Yeah. In, In my way, you know, for, for now, it actually seems like it really is for real becoming dangerous to be someone who oh. advocates these ideas. So you got John Brennan openly on yeah. on news saying libertarians are a danger and are roped in with these domestic terrorists. Yeah. See, that's the thing, too. That was one of the big things that Stefan Molyneux said that really stuck with me was the against me argument. I think that was a big thing where you can take some of these abstract principles and you can put it into real life and you can say to your friend who legitimately loves you and cares about you, your status friend, would you be okay with me getting stuck in a FEMA camp because I'm a libertarian? Are you okay with that? Because not only does it put on them to think about what they're actually supporting, 
But then for you, it helps you because then you can figure out which of the people in your life want to throw you in a FEMA camp and then right. you can maybe distance yourself from them. <laughs> in, in, in my experience, people are, are like, no, no. Like they just, they refuse to connect the two together. Right. They refuse to connect the state with violence. Sometimes I'm sure you've had this experience. These people, uh, they're like, oh yeah, that, like, like my mom, for instance, you know, she's like, oh yeah, law is violence. You know, that's how it is. Of course, mm-hmm. of course it's that way. And um, they're like, well, it's necessary, you know, it's necessary. Mm-hmm. And I, that's kind of the conservative side of it. It's like, okay, well, at least you're being honest about it on mm-hmm. one end. I, I don't want to put my, you know, my mom on blast or no. anything like that. But a lot of people know, I, it, it's crazy that people will not connect the state with violence when we have, you know, all throughout modern political theory history, we have Barack Obama said the state was a monopoly on violence, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, Leviathan, um, you, you know, all these people, Thomas Hobbes, you know, they've said explicitly the state is mm-hmm. violent. So yeah. how come, you know, it takes a lot of conditioning for people not to make that connection? Yeah. Well, also here, this gets into semantics, too. And this is an interesting point. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear your perspective on it. Me as a libertarian and what I think, how I think about it. I'm not against violence. It's like if somebody attacks you and then you defend yourself violently, that's fine. I think it's more aggression, right? So it's like with the law, I think your mother is right. The law is violence. The law in a lot of ways is saying, hey, you've got to do this or you've got to not do this. But the question is whether or not that's aggression. Because if you if you volunteer, if you voluntarily join some group, join some community, and then you agree to abide by the arbitrators or the decision makers of that community and whatever decision they might make in potential conflicts, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem is the monopoly. The, the problem is that when you have that monopoly, prices go up, quality goes down. And then socially, there's like we've been talking about, there's just so much conditioning and you know Orwellian stuff that go into the state maintaining power. So, you know, that's, I think, is the issue. So what do you think about that? Am I on the right track? Yeah, no, you are. I And I think it, it comes down to exactly what term you want to use to define, because you're exactly right. You know, what is aggression? The state, of course, uses, you know, Mark Passio makes the distinction between what is violence and what is force, because violence is aggressive force and force is legally justified or morally justified for. So I, yeah. I should make that distinction. Mm-hmm. I think the problem that we're coming into is being a libertarian um, is the proportionality ar- argument. And I think that when it comes to a libertarian legal order, I think a lot could be said about the proportionality issue because so say for instance here, like I didn't know this position that Rothbard had on, on personal injury law specifically. Right. He said that, um, in order to abide by the non-aggression principle, you have to have um, plaintiffs prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, even when it's a civil personal injury case. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. right now, the standard is the preponderance of the evidence. So you need to prove that it was more likely than not that a crash was more someone more the defendant's fault than it was your own fault. I, I vehemently disagree with Rothbard here because as a personal injury lawyer, I know how difficult it is to prove your case. You know, sure, there's a lot of rear enders where where fault is pretty clear. I mean, you could prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. I guess my my point here is that while there probably needs to be a different legal burden 
if you are proving your case against alienable property, because in a civil case, you're not going to be throwing someone in prison and taking away their liberty in the future. Um, in, in a criminal case, that would be the case. You know, there's different degrees of negligence. There's wanton and reckless indifference. Um, you know, that's a criminal issue. Beyond a reasonable doubt is fine. But when you come to a case where you're literally, you know, no one would prevail. You would never settle a case if the standard was beyond a reasonable doubt. The insurance companies would say, screw you. We're going to trial on every case, not every case. But so I guess the long winded way of saying is like, okay, of course, you know, we have the theory of property where if you are putting, um, you know, your time and effort into creating borders or establishing an objective title, um, connection between you and a piece of property, as, as Hoppe would say. Um, you could make the argument that you are stealing the life from someone else by taking their alienable property. I guess that would be the counter argument. I'm just kind of spitballing here. Yeah. Keith and I did an, an unreleased episode about this, kind of like where we were going through Rothbard's quotes on the law. And I, I could, maybe I'll have to send it to you afterwards because I don't okay. want to burn time. But um, he essentially um my theory my whole theory of like negligence and personal injury is that you are putting you are aggressing against someone by putting them in a situation where their person or property is at unreasonable risk of harm yeah and so i think that you're justified you know in a situation where you know it's post facto you know we look back and you have been injured you've had a loss a property loss then you're coming back to avenge it in a way like so i i don't think anyways uh you know that's fertile ground for a paper if kinsella hasn't already written that yeah so, yeah yeah I, I always steal i, I always steal ideas from him <laughs> because yeah. uh he just recently oh i think he i no it, he he was recently on uh keith's keith's show and he brought up a work by um, Bombavik about the classification of classification of legal rights as economic goods, and and Stefan said that that was something that he thinks needs more treatment um, and could be expanded upon. I don't know if you are you familiar at all um, with this. I'm not. Uh, no, but I I will tell you a, a quick snippet. When I when I was in my second year of law school, I remember I emailed Kinsella and I asked him because I wanted to rework Lysander Spooner's The Constitution of No Authority because I, I found some quibbles with it and I wanted to basically you know bring it into the 21st century. And he sent me back within 10 or 20 minutes, like four paragraph yeah. answer full of citations, and then <laughs> same thing. I don't yeah. know if he. If you've emailed him and he said that too, but we're at in the, we're in the like fall of the late stage fall of the empire. It feels oh, yeah. like. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Oh, oh, I mean, I think the signs are clear. I mean, inflation, debt, um, breakdown of, uh, um, I mean, just social norms breaking down. Um, I mean, one of the most interesting things for me is something that Michael Malice talks about because he's really interested in uh, Camille Paglia and kind of like yes. the idea of androgyny at yes. the, and and um, sexual promiscuity at the end of empires. It's pretty. It seems pretty. Act oh, who was a uh, J.D. Unwin? 
U-N-W-I-N. I think it's J.D. Unwin. I, I'm pretty sure that's the la- right last name. And I think he did a study. It's an old one. I think it was from like the 20s or the 30s, around that time. I could be wrong. It's been a while since I looked into it. But I think he did a study on exactly that, on looking at sexual practices at the end of cultures and empires and almost always the sexual promiscuity, um, androgyny, other things like that really come into the cultural consciousness right before a before a political and cultural collapse. And That's I mean, we're definitely seeing that. I, I think it's so awesome that you brought up the Camille Pegley issue because I remember watching that interview with Jordan Peterson like four or five years ago. Yeah, yeah, great interview. I, I brought that up several times to people and I was going to mention it before you did, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, in, in some way it seems like it's, I'm always afraid of being hyperbolic because I'm one of the first people to, you know, earlier in my libertarian career, I fell real hard down the conspiracy rabbit hole. And mm-hmm. I thought I was being super, you know, just over the top and hyperbolic. And then everything I started warning everyone about started to happen, especially in the last couple of years. Oh yeah. And, um, my, my, so my, my grandpa was a John Bircher <laughs> and I I've been saying this more and more in, in the podcast because he's really like, you know, I still have some of his old, his old, um, you know, his pamphlets and literature and he, I never got to meet him cause he died when I was younger, uh, when I was one year old, but my, my parents just keep saying, you know, you're just like your grandpa, you're just like your grandpa. And I'm like, well, good. That's, <laughs> I wish he was here so I could, you know, he could see this, but yeah. My, my mom always said is that, you know, he was warning of federal, you know, the Federal Reserve hyperinflation, the fall, the overextension of the empire. I have articles he wrote against uh, Iraq War One in our new our local newspaper. And I mean, he was like, you know, we Based. conservatives. It, yes, I have the article. <laughs> He's like, it, it's tucked into my copy of Fool's Errand. Oh, OK. Um, but he said, you know, basically us conservatives were tricked into war in Vietnam and, you know, we won't be tricked again. And I, I, I wish he was right. Cause he was wrong. Mm-hmm. They were tricked again. And, um, you know, he was always warning about this, but my, my great uncle who passed away maybe six years ago, my, my parents remember him saying that, you know, I'm glad that I'm almost gone, that I'll be gone soon because things are not going, you know, things are going to get really bad here. Yeah. And those are both anecdotal things, but you know, them seeing them being red men, learned men who have paid attention to this for decades. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, good chills. <laughs> All of my family has become more libertarian, partially because of my influence. Um, especially my mom. My mom has become very red pilled lately. Yeah, um, mine too. <laughs> and it's it's beautiful to see. Um, but you know, it's like what you said with the uh with the conspiracies. And, and and that kind of stuff, you know, you're just kind of like, oh, that's the first time you hear it. It's like, oh, that's kind of crazy. And then, you know, Epstein and everything happens. And then you're like, oh, OK, maybe uh, uh, maybe Mr. Jones was right about a few things. <laughs> yeah. Well, you I, I think you where I felt like I came full circle in the conspiracy world is when I started seeing disinformation everywhere and taint yeah. agents everywhere. And um I laid off the gas a little bit after yeah. that. I kind of focused on other things, but you know, I, I love James Corbett. He's another reason why Ooh. I'm a main reason why I'm doing the podcast in the format that I do. Yeah. And um, 
you know, he has open source to everything. He's just, if you're going to be in that space, you have to cross your T's and dot your I's. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you're, you're wading into murky waters for sure. And, and you're definitely setting yourself up to get nailed. And that's what, that's what Alex Jones did with the, with the Sandy Hook stuff. Yeah. You get one thing wrong and everything you said was, is completely discredited. So I think you're right. I think in some ways, you know, that was what, that was one of the thoughts I had when I was really getting into the, um, and, and cap stuff. I was, I was really interested in theory a little bit more recently. I'm getting more interested in history and learning more about history. I think once I get a chance to pick up more books on my own, once, you know, my law school reading, um, dies down, I want to read more history books because I was really into theory back in the day. And my thought process was, well, you know, theory explains why the state is unjustifiable. And that's fine by me because then I'm not wading into the dangerous territory of, of that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a tough one, but you know, because there are real conspiracies. I mean, operation Northwoods, MK ultra starfish prime. I mean, these are real things that happened. And so it's, it sucks when you find out that these actual crazy stuff happened. And then when you see similar kind of things, because our minds are, our, our minds are wired to find patterns. You know, it's just how we survived. I mean, we're much more, we're much more likely to make false positive errors than false negative because the people who made false negative errors thinking that the rustle in the brass was rustle in the grass was just the wind rather than a tiger. Well, they got eaten by the tiger. Right. So we're much more, we're much more predisposed to think that there are connections between things than there really are. So that's why it's just so dangerous trying to, you got the, you know, Pepe Silvia and all the, <laughs> on the, the, the wall, the, the John Nash, you know, you, you go schizophrenic almost. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 I, there, I really enjoy it. I, you know, and sometimes I, I put it on just for entertainment purposes. Yeah, it's fun. David it's Ike. Fun. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I don't believe in what David Ike says, but yeah. I'd rather someone be based red pilled in a little crazy than yeah. be complete sheep. Yeah. And, um, I liked putting David Ike on mostly because, um, it's entertaining. <laughs> oh, I mean, like, Projections from from the rings of Saturn in our holographic universe <laughs> and lizard people. You know that pro, that projection from the rings of Saturn thing goes back to the Four Horsemen, uh, uh, like one of the granddaddy conspiracy books. I don't yeah. know if you've. I've tried reading it, but it's almost it seems intelligible to me. But uh, yeah. I what I really like is the. Um, I don't know if you've watched Mark Passio stuff. I've brought him up in a bunch of interviews lately, but he. He was um he was a bishop in the Church of Satan, and he, he kind of <laughs> okay. thought behind the curtain a bit, and he gives a lot of talks about this like the Satanic New World Order conspiracy yeah. stuff, yeah. and he says basically that there's a few or front organizations that are feeders for recruiting people for like the New World Order, and that mm -hmm. that is one of them, and so they you know there's like layers and rings within rings kind of stuff so. <laughs> It's really interesting and entertaining. I want to have him on my podcast really bad. Go for it. That sounds fun. You know, this yeah. is the, this is the second time we've talked about Satanism on this podcast. Oh, really? So for <laughs> some reason, we can't get away from it. We I had was, a, I, I no, dabbled in high school. Really? 
Did you, did well, you try was, to cast any spells or I was, I remember, you know, for a specific week, I was really, I'm really into heavy metal and okay. I think that's kind of what like brought me down the path a little bit. So yeah. I tried it out a little bit, you know, I hung an upside down cross in my room and I read the satanic Bible, you know, yeah. so Dude, well, Derek... what was the first time you talked about? We had, we had Derek and Kyle from burning boots podcast on. Um, they actually uh, they actually changed the name of the podcast because uh, Kyle left, and now it's just Eric and Davey doing it. It's called the Libertarian Friendship Simulator for people who don't know, so people can listen to it. But um, Derek, um, Derek just hates uh, he hates witches and witchcraft stuff. Yeah. <laughs> he thinks it's stupid as hell, and so he loves he loves talking about it and just shitting on people who think they can cast spells and stuff. And it was funny because. Um, Actually, the house I was talking about before with with the with the drywall falling out of the ceiling, um, like a year or two after I left, some of the people who had been living there before stayed and they brought in some new people. So I went back there a few times just to hang out with old friends. And one of the girls who ended up moving in was a witch Wiccan. Oh, she was like a Yeah. Yeah. And she was doing weird stuff. She was like. (laughs) legit like had like a cauldron in the front lawn she was like brewing stuff to dye her jeans and stuff like she was doing weird stuff so i had some exposure to it so i was kind of interested it was really weird yeah i never took anything that far it was a weird high school stage yeah i was also interested in it too because i remember you know anton Levey and and the satanism stuff i mean it's 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 basically it's basically objectivist Ayn Rand selfishness stuff, but with some rituals. Yeah, um, and it's interesting too because there was that, there was that hilarious clip when Ayn Rand was on Donahue, and the woman goes up and she asks, she asks Ayn Rand, um, whether Atlas Shrug is a blueprint for the new world or new world order takeover. <laughs> so it's like this woman's asking Ayn Rand. If she's making a blueprint for the new world order, and then you got Anton Lavey, who's like almost explicitly like drawing influences from her, and so we got the satanic new world order. I don't know. See, I'm drawing connections. I need to get I need right. to get the cork board out. Right, right. <laughs> with, uh, you know, I always thought that was uh, that meme was from with Charlie from It's Always Sunny. I yeah. thought that was from It's Always Sunny, but someone told me the meme is actually from a movie. Do you know that? I, I've never watched It's Always Sunny or well, something. Well, ha- would, it, would it be A Beautiful Mind, John Nash with Russell Crowe? Because there were scenes in that movie where he was doing the 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 red lines and the pins yeah. and the images. Yeah. And he, because, I mean, John Nash legit was schizophrenic. And he thought that right. he was going on missions for the FBI and the CIA. And he was just running around in his backyard <laughs> maybe he was oh. no, I don't know. maybe i, I was gonna say though and, and maybe this brings us to to another topic that we wanted to hit up was what really was a conspiracy was the kentucky and virginia resolutions oh yeah um, and so where where thomas jefferson and james madison ghost wrote these resolutions to be passed in kentucky mm-hmm. and virginia yeah, talk a little bit more about those resolutions, um, because you wrote a paper about this. I have done a little bit of research into it. I've heard Tom Woods talk about it a little bit, um, but it's something I haven't gotten too much into the history of. So two things. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what they were, what the arguments were, what was kind of going on there? And secondly, 
kind of bridge that into the conversation of the practicability of secession today because I kind of go back and forth in my mind on this because I'll go on Twitter and I'll see some blue-pilled sheep kind of post and I'll just be like, we need secession. Like, <laughs> I just, I'll just think to myself, like, there's no other option. This just has to happen. And then when I go to my class at law school and we're talking about the Civil War and we're discussing, you know, the practicality of secession today, um, not just the legality of it with Texas versus white and that kind of stuff, but just the practicality of it. Like, how would it work? And sometimes I have a hard time being convinced that something like it could actually work without some serious violence happening. And then other times I think that it's the that secession and the decentralization is the only thing we can have to avoid the violence. So what do you think? Yeah, I, you know, and we were talking earlier about, you know, exactly the the moments where we became a anarchist and in in my whole thing it's like when i really became an anarchist was when i realized that you know you will never have a government that will ever stay within its bounds um you and and you'll never be able to do that and everything you know gets corrupted the more free market government you have the more supercharged private business gets and then the state just latches onto it and uses it so um but go, going back to the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, this was a paper that I wrote. It was my long paper requirement um, for, for my law school experience. And I wrote it in my American legal history class. And basically what you have is, you know, we all know the history of how the, the American constitution was written. Um, so when that happened, you had Two, two factions. You had the Federalists who were the proponents of the Constitution, and then you had the Anti-Federalists who were opposed to the new Constitution. And the Federalists were much more greater represented at the convention. Yeah. Yeah, good. Jump in and, and help me here because I, you know, we're, we're going back a few years and it's been a while since I've read all these documents. So Yeah, well, I mean, uh, what isn't it? Uh, Patrick Henry refused to go because he smelled a yeah. rat. He said, yeah. I'm not even going to I'm not even going to legitimize this convention by showing up. I love Patrick Henry. He's the um, best. And I mean, you had James Madison roughly more on the side of the Federalists. You had El, um, Alexander Hamilton largely. You had um, John Adams, who was a huge federal. I mean, they all you know, they wanted to recreate a government in the image of the crown, in the image of the, the British government. And. Mm. John Adams himself said in the conventions that he, we should have a King <laughs> and yeah. wanted, you know, Washington to be a King. And so in, and, and I think Madison was more kind of in the middle, but they wrote the federalist papers to kind of sell the constitution to the States. And essentially what you have after the fact is you have um, John Adams becoming, becoming president. And this all happens in the backdrop of the French revolution and you have a, a complete dissolution of the old anti-federalist and federalist party lines. You have people like James Madison kind of coming over to what became known as the Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans. And you still have the old federalist aristocracy, much the same swamp rats, Alexander Hamilton, John, John Adams. Um, and so the new Jeffersonian Republicans supported France because they saw France as being like our brothers, uh, that they were walking a similar path, that they wanted, you know, liberty in our image, that they had helped us out in the American Revolution originally. 
and they supported those efforts later on after didn't, didn't really work out <laughs> didn't really work out that way and i think you know thomas jefferson specifically was aghast and um in private correspondence he he denounced the the murderous jacobins of france and yeah. Um, but at the same time, I, I just talked about this on James Gentleman's Black, The Blackbird podcast. It hasn't released yet. Maybe you'll release this before he does. But um, he, at, at this time, the Federalists, we see a real connection to the Russiagate narrative. Oh, and this is, in a way, it ties in here because the Federalists saw French um French collusion under every rock. You know, is the French collusion in the room with us right now? And to the point where, you know, there were there were a few flashpoints, like uh, I believe there was a French ambassador that came on a French war vessel and like American cannons almost shot. This is this is called the the something incident, but something almost kicked off. And uh, there was a French ambassador that came in, in American. I think it was in Boston and cannons almost fired on this French vessel. Um, but so essentially the Federalists saw they were worried that Thomas Jefferson and his ilk were plotting actively with French agents and that they were going to like clandestinely guide a French war convoy to land on, you know, the shores of Massachusetts. This is what ultimately led to the alien and sedition acts. Exactly. Yep. And so the alien and sedition acts were passed. It was, it was uh, partly to undercut, you know, the, the minority leader of the house at the time, I think it was, Albert Gallatin, he was uh, French-born, and uh, they wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to get rid of a bunch of senators, uh, a congressman, rather. They wanted to chill speech. So they, they passed the Alien and Sedition Acts uh, basically completely against the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there were show trials that happened against uh, Jeffersonian Republicans, uh, most most notably Benjamin Franklin Bosch, the grandson of Benjamin Franklin, um, and the the Democratic Republicans used these trials largely as grandstands to point out how unconstitutional the laws were and to drum up political support. And so, what what happened essentially is that Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, in secret, were like, "Wow, this really went downhill fast. We got to do something about it." Um, Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers about what the proper action was to deal with the federal government who outsteps its bounds under the Constitution. And so Madison and Jefferson got together. They conspired in a secret meeting that wasn't documented. They both wrote these resolves that were passed in the Virginia and Kentucky legislatures, basically saying, you know, Thomas Jefferson saying that when the federal government steps out its delegated powers, a nullification of the act is the rightful remedy. So essentially they, they, hooked everything into the real meaning of the Declaration of Independence, the real meaning of what the Constitution was, which was a compact between free and sovereign states, logically following that if free and sovereign states came together as free and sovereign states to create a federal government, if that government outstepped its, its powers, that power would divest back to the states and ultimately would divest back to the people under the theory of popular sovereignty, which is the theory upon which the new government was based. And I, I could go on and on about the lineage of this theory of popular sovereignty, but it goes back to the uh, British Civil War, back to the Magna Carta, and even further back into Anglo-Saxon antiquity. But the levelers during the, the British Civil War were a, a group um, 
of basically kind of pseudo communists, but um, they were like real, you know, they identified this idea that the people are the ultimate sovereigns and the king is not. Um, but I digress. And so when you have these, these uh, resolutions being passed, essentially, they were universally condemned by the Federalist states, which was mostly in New England. And the story of it, it two or three, Two or three decades later, it comes out that Madison and Jefferson were actually the ones to have written these resolutions. Um, but even though the Federalist states universally condemned the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, later on, when you have the War of 1812 uh, the against the British crown, uh, these New England states used the nullification principles to try to secede. You know, there was talks of secession. Um, but they used them. So even though they disagreed with them when they came out against the Alien and Sedition Acts, you know, 15, 20 years later, they tried to use them to stop the War of 1812 and to secede. So the story throughout American history of nullification and secession is basically the party who is in power thinks that it doesn't exist. And the party who is out of power wants to use it and thinks it's totally fine and awesome. Yes, yes. So like... Uh... Before the Civil War, northern states were not only nullifying fugitive slave acts, yes. but they were Wisconsin. also uh, yeah, that's right. And they were also yeah. um they were also saying they wanted to secede. Some of them yeah. were saying, like, we don't want to be in a union with these assholes who are enslaving people. And so it's a real um uh, I said this in my class recently when we were talking about the Civil War and secession and slavery and all the interconnected things going on there. And the first few years of law school, there was the, there's the saying, bad facts make bad law. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know what that meant until very recently. And the Civil War was the kind of thing that made me realize, oh, it means that like when you have a case and the facts are just horrible, like you read what happened and it's just like terrible. And the and the Civil War is like exactly that. There's slavery, but then there's also this war where all these people are conscripted and killed, and it's just it's just terrible. And then from that, you have Texas versus White, which basically says that secession is off the table. And so, if you read South Carolina when they seceded, their declaration of secession, the whole first three fourths of the document is basically just an argument for the compact theory of the union, an argument that secession is legal. And then the very last portion is saying, we want to secede based on this legal argument because of, because of slavery. So the legal argument for why secession is allowed had nothing to do with the specific reason why they wanted to secede. But then afterwards, in the cultural consciousness, secession becomes so inextricably linked with slavery that you don't you don't recognize that nuance and that's a huge that's a huge problem and i think it's also something we talked about in an early episode i can't remember where it is i think it's in article 3 but i could be wrong but there's something in the constitution that says it might be the supremacy clause i can't remember but it says something along the lines of the the supreme court will have um uh, appellate jurisdiction or something, something or other over, over state laws. Because in Hunter's Lessee, they said that they have ultimate authority to declare whether or not state laws are constitutional. And if you read the text of the Constitution, 
it actually does not say that the Supreme Court will have sole authority to decide whether or not those state laws are constitutional or not. They just have authority to do so, but not the sole authority. So there's nothing in there that implies that the states don't have equal authority to interpret the federal constitution. And I think that's a lot of what Jefferson argued, right? Doesn't he argue in the Kentucky that the states have not only the authority to secede, but they have the authority to interpret the constitution on par with the federal government and that both of them should have that authority because then you create a dialogue and you can figure out where the disagreements and stuff are. But to have the one monopoly is a problem and it destroys the state sovereignty. Jefferson saw nullification as a moderate remedy. Um, you know, he said secession is an extreme remedy, but he actually, Jefferson thought that nullification was something that would prevent conflict between the states, mm -hmm. prevent anything that came out into open, you know, blows. Basically. Well, I mean, if if the federal government, if the Supreme Court was to rule in some way that a state didn't like, if it didn't have some legally recognized option like a nullification, then what's left? Right. What's left is just leaving or fighting. There's there's right. there's there's no discussion left to be had. So I I totally agree. So I think that I think that moves into the next thing because you recently had Michael Bolden on your show. Very good episode. Everyone should check it out. Um good quick episode, half hour. Really liked it. Yeah, and, thank you. And he was talking about with his 10th Amendment Center and arguments for decentralization. And when I listened to that, I started to think more about the difference between secession and decentralization. So I'm, I'm wondering your opinion, which of the two do you think is the better way forward? Like, do you think there could be a decentralist movement that could maybe, at least for the time being, you know, protect us from some of the violence that, looks like it might outbreak because of all the craziness of our politics right now or do you think or do you think that's just putting a band-aid on a gangrenous wound do you think that secession is the only possible answer on uh, i no i i don't think that secession is the only possible answer and i'm saying that as an individualist anarchist libertarian who you know i believe in theory everyone should be able to secede down to the individual sure that being said i think that um the only way to keep the nation together is for nullification. Mm -hmm. I think eventually, if we don't have nullification, things are going to reach a boiling point, yeah. um, and and it's going to boil over. the the only The only way forward is nullification. We have, and and I think the movement is very healthy. the The wonderful thing about it is that you don't have to. Well, you do have to sell it to people, but it's an easy sell. You can sell it to, you know, hippy dippy liberals who want to legalize weed yeah. um, and, and go yeah. further with their other uh, ones that want to be sanctuary cities. Uh -huh. um, you, and you can sell it to conservatives on on gun control. Exactly. I was just about to say. Yeah. And, and I think that ties into what you said before, is that everybody wants secession when it benefits them. Right. Uh, I just did a paper. Um, on, did you ever take a class on international law in law school? I, um, the only one that I had is I took Japanese law and we oh. kind of stuck that a little bit. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should talk about that in the future sometime, but, um, I didn't read for that class. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. You, you, you'll, you'll know more about it than I do. Um, but, uh, 
So I, I just recently did a paper, um, and we just released an episode just today while, while we're recording this. We released an episode where we talk about it. Um, and I did a paper on self-determination of peoples, which is a doctrine under public international law. And it's kind of linked up with secession, but not really. It's 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 a weird kind of relationship that the, that the two things have with each other. But one of the things that I point out, because the first part of my paper, I go through the history of the doctrine and I do kind of a historical analysis. And one of the things that I point out is when you look at the history of it from the end of World War One up until the modern day, basically, is that they were always arguing for secession when it was politically good for them, but then they would stop arguing for it when it, when it, when it, right? So it's like when, when decolonization was happening and the third world states were trying to become independent states and break free from the Western colonial empires, they were saying, we want self-determination and we want to break free from you. But then when those independent states were made, they say, no, 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 self-determination doesn't mean secession because then the people who are in our new independent states are going to secede from our state, you know? So it's just like oh, this crazy. So you're right. There's always this contradiction with the secession issue where the left and the right both love it and hate it, depending on the political situations of a given moment in time. And I think that's one of the sad, sad things that politics does. It creates these contradictions and this winner take all mentality that, you know, us as market people, we recognize it doesn't have to be the case. Moreover than that, we um, people who are principled like us, I, I feel like not to toot our own horns or anything like that, but we see these contradictions and it's something that is a great, it really bothers us yeah. because we're like, holy crap, well, you know, this does not compute with the framework, so we have to figure it out. We have a fetish for consistency. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I mean, to that whole point, um, Corbett is someone who kind of scoffs at at like remember when Catalonia was happening, Corbett was, Corbett was like um, criticizing it, basically saying that you know what happens when folks want to secede and form a more totalitarian government, right. or what you're doing too is you know when you secede, there is a percentage of the population in the seceding state who does not want secession. Right. And so I, you know, I, I tend to err on the side of the smaller, the better. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I, I agree. A geographically smaller state isn't necessarily, you know, what if Catalonia wanted to secede so they could exterminate 40% of the population, you yeah. know? Yeah. But yeah, it's a, it's a legitimate, it's a legitimate question. And the, the issue is that you're ultimately seceding just to make another state and a right. state and a state will always have the problems of a state. So until you take secession to its full logical conclusion, like Mises does, like Rothbard does, the secession of the individual and the contract-based government, you know, so you want to move towards that. And history is messy. Human society and life is messy. It's not an a priori truth that if a secession were to occur, that everything would necessarily get better. But if we advocate it, if we advocate it within a broader view of libertarianism in general— then if you get enough of it going down and you keep whittling more and more and more and more states to be smaller and smaller, I think that the kind of, you know, the theoretical um, benefits will start to come out. A specific case, you're right, maybe something bad would happen in a specific case. But I think overall, if you keep going down that road, you'll see those benefits accrue. 
or or Scotland seceding from the UK, yeah. you know, to to create an even more socialized government kind of situation. Yeah. But you know, in, in theory, they have the right to do that. Yeah. In theory. Yeah. Uh, which which leads you leads me to the other portion of your question is is it expedient in the United States for any kind of con- uh, uh, state to secede right now? Um, the reason why I advocate nullification is because a wonderful thing that you know Madison said and Michael Bolden you know says as well is practically speaking the federal government relies upon the states to execute the vast majority of its policies. Yes. Yes. Without the support now, now the the federal government has been doing these things to to fight against that, like holding the purse strings, mm-hmm. and you know conditioning COVID relief funds specifically is the new cudgel. Well, what was the, what was the big case uh, uh, where they said that basically the the funding tied to the federal interstates? If you don't have the drinking age be twenty one, then you lose right. all this funding. So it's basically a legalized bribe. Right. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Or, or, you know, and then the anti-commandeering clause comes into play here where, you know, the, the, was it the Texas sports gambling case? It was a sports gambling case, I think in Atlantic city, New Jersey or something. I think I remember that, but I can't, I, I, the specifics elude me. Um, well, basically I, you know, what I remember from it, I did an episode on it, so I should know. (laughs) Um, what I remember from it was isn't that always the case? <laughs> I know, it's, and I I used to be able I have like the highlight my favorite ones memorized which number they are so I could do the show notes easily. But yeah. essentially, what it is is that the the federal government can't commandeer the states to enforce federal law. Yeah. Um. And and so, but but that being said, um, the states definitely can use this as as a tool. If, if enough states banded together and decided, you know, we're not going to enforce these gun control measures, there's practically speaking nothing the federal government can do about it. Yeah. So we need brave people to fill state legislatures or we need brave counties. Um, yeah. Well, I was just about to mention Kyle when I was talking about before from Burning Boots that he's working on called Free County Project. So it's supposed to be kind of like the Free State Project with New Hampshire but it's much more smaller, localized, and he's just trying to get a small group of people to um, basically like what you said, like in some county, just a bunch of libertarians move there. They buy a bunch of land near nearby each other. They get someone in a position like a sheriff or something like that, and then they just say, "Feds, you're not welcome here," and yeah. you're not you're not gonna you're not gonna enforce this crap here, and we're not gonna do it. And I mean, look at what happened. It's not a state county versus the feds. It was state counties versus the governors in the states. But when the COVID restrictions were first being put in place, there were a handful of sheriffs from across the county who were saying, we're not doing this. I mean, I remember in Michigan, there were two counties, two sheriffs who came out and made public statements and said, we're not locking anything down. Are you kidding? We're not doing this. And I think that's proper. And that's the way it should be. I mean, you need like just as the states need to be a check on the federal government, the counties need to be a check on the states. And so if you have a sheriff like that who's willing to do that, I think that's a beautiful thing. We we need brave people is what we need. And Absolutely. I mean, we, we do what we do. And I think it's becoming increasingly brave to do, not to break my arm, patting myself on the back here, but, you know, there's a lot of libertarians who are speaking out and, you know, whether it's on social media or what have you, you know, just listening to this is a revolutionary act. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, I don't want to keep you too long. We've been kind of been going on for a while, but I got one final question that I want to ask you. And I think it'll be a good way to kind of wrap up a lot of the, the strands we've been going through with this. So I want to ask you, uh, how has your legal education and your experience as a lawyer changed your your viewpoints as a libertarian for the better? And kind of, you know, the flip side of that is what do you think is something that libertarians, you know, even very radical and cap libertarians, Rothbardians, whatever, what is something that you think that they get wrong a lot because they don't understand the nature of how law really works in practice or they or they kind of, you know, there's certain things in the legal, you know, the legal profession that I mean, a lot of people don't understand these things because the legal profession, especially in this statist world, is so insulated where we're using Latin terms that nobody understands. And so I think there's a lot of problems there. So. What do you think is something that your legal education and your experience as a lawyer has taught you about libertarianism and being a libertarian is being a libertarian that non-lawyer libertarians sometimes miss out and that they need to learn? There's a lot. Um, and, and like you said, I, I totally agree. Being in the law is, I don't know, it's, it's almost like another layer of being able to read the code in the matrix to make that kind of analogy and, and not to not to be an elitist or anything like that. But sometimes I, I feel a little guilty because I feel like other people are so disadvantaged without having at least an elementary understanding of how these institutions really work. Yeah. And the experience of litigating a case, I mean, it's immense power to be able to file a complaint yourself if you want to. Um, a lot of people don't understand, you know, how, how these institutions really work. So um, one realization that I had very early on in my public defender career is that things are not black and white. And you hear that. I think that Rothbardians get that wrong a lot. Um, the younger they are, the more potential they have for getting this wrong. And I got it wrong too. Oh yeah. Um, for sure. I had, I had a lot of clients who I wanted them to be, you know, their crimes to be victimless, but hardly ever does a possession case not have something else attached to it. Yeah. Like, you know, a theft or a battery or, or something. So very rarely will that happen. You just get like a, a you know, a felony possession of methamphetamine, you know, something. Um, so there's, there's that kind of distinction too. Um, you know, another realization is one that Rothbardians get right is that, you know, as much as I talk about the law being a special profession where you, you know how institutions really work, lawyers are people and Rothbardians get this right. Lawyers are people. There's lots of mistakes that are made in the law. And that's because, you know, there's a, a set of rules, but the execution of those rules doesn't always go by the book. Mm -hmm. And sometimes lawyers, I mean, I guess my biggest red pill is that lawyers most of the time have no idea what's going on. Yeah. I mean, especially young lawyers. Well, language is so ambiguous that right. the same text can be reasonably interpreted in different ways. Right. And I don't think that's necessarily a wrong thing, because a lot of the times when you're dealing with law, when you're looking at precedent or other things like that, I mean, having a strict, formalistic, legalistic, rigid way of applying these kind of things it just doesn't work like you need to be able to have leeway to deal with not only crazy cases but just like any case where the circumstances are so varied in every single case 
So it's like, yes, you need a set of principles, but you know, like you said, things are just not so black and white. And I think this is one of the beautiful things about the John Hasnass article, the, the myth of the rule of law. And I think that's true. I mean, it blew my mind when I read that article, but I really do believe that there really is, in a sense, no rule of law because any law, any precedent or any statute has to be interpreted and it can be interpreted reasonably in different ways. And not only does it need to be interpreted, it needs to be applied. So the same interpretation can be applied reasonably in different ways. So you have all these layers of of these different reasonable ways that you can apply these things. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. In fact, I actually think that's very liberating because it's this 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 truncated view of the law as like a statute or something and that you have this rule of law and it exists outside of the minds of the people who are reading it and stuff. I mean, that's what leads, I think, to totalitarianism because you're divorcing law from morality. You're divorcing law from the exigencies of human life and the messiness of human life. And it takes away responsibility from the people who are interpreting and applying the laws. It's like the, it's like the, it's like the bootlicker argument. Well, just doing my job, you know, it's, it's just the law. It's just like, you know, it's just, no, I mean, you know, law is always wrapped up in morality and law is always wrapped up in the particular circumstances of a case. I don't think I don't think you can get rid of that. And I think sometimes even libertarians, they view the law in that way and then they reject it and then they go full, you know, with, with no law and order at all. And I don't think that's that's what we're about. I actually think that we're the only people who are actually in favor of law and order. I think we're the right. only ones who truly believe in law and order. And that's kind of the beauty of having a jury. Uh, there's drawbacks mm. to juries. Yeah. There's huge drawbacks to juries. However, um, you know, and that's why having a culture of liberty is so important. Right. I was just, I was but, just about to say that, yeah. you know, one of the things that people will say against the libertarian is, so well, you need to get everybody to agree with you on this. And the right. only way it can work is if everybody agrees. And I'm just like, that's how it is with the Constitution. Right. The, if the Constitution is not going to restrict the government unless everybody agrees that this is what it means. So you can't get away from that. That's always going to be a problem. You always have to have a societal consensus on how we do things. That's, that's a problem for any idea, for any legal system, for any social system. So to particularly levy that at libertarians is just absurd. That's the beauty of the law is that it, it can be, it's adaptive. It, what it really is, is like you said, it's normative. It's like, how do we do things in, you know, Green County, Wisconsin? Well, it's different than we do things in Dane County, Wisconsin, for sure. Or Milwaukee County, Wisconsin. Well, yeah, for sure. <laughs> the laws are the same, but the application of them is different because right. the sentiments of the jury are different. And the judge. And because the law will say, what did a reasonable person, what would a reasonable person have done in this situation? Well, the right. reasonable person in Milwaukee is not the same as a reasonable person in Superior. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not. So, yeah, you're totally right. Yeah. But the, the second part of your question uh, was that to do with, um, you know, what it's, how being a lawyer has changed the way that I see things. Um. I guess I, I kind of answered it. It's like, okay, well, 
being able to read the code in the matrix or having the power to file a complaint if I really wanted to. I wouldn't have to pay someone else to handle that or to, to be able to understand these interactions that are going on around you. Um, I, I think that there's, in, our, in a real education system, people would know or have some kind of an elementary understanding of this, these concepts. Yeah. So. Well, great. I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up. Patrick, do you have any uh, plugs you want to give? Any uh, place people can find you or uh, connect with you? Yeah. So the one-stop shop pretty much is libertyweekly.net. You know, I have links there. I have a discord channel. I have support if you want to get bonuses and support my work um, and email lists. And, you know, I'm on Substack. I'm on pretty much every single social media site that you can think of. So just search Liberty Weekly. But, um, you know, you'll have to tell me because I've realized that you're in a whole wing of libertarian podcasters that I'm not aware of yet. So we need to link. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. Anyways, but yeah, it was a real pleasure. I really enjoyed our talk today. So hopefully we'll do it again soon. Oh yeah. I would love to do this again. Um, This has been really great. I I think we've, uh, there's just so much we could possibly talk about. So it's just like, we didn't even, we didn't even talk about judicial review yet. Oh geez. That's a whole episode in itself. It is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, listeners, thank you for tuning in. This has been the Law of Liberty podcast, and we will see you next time.